Today we're going to learn a Sicha on Parsha Yisro. It's the second Sicha of volume 21 of Lakutri Sichas. Today is a fascinating, fascinating Sicha. And you will see the uniqueness in the Sicha, how it goes into a few different categories and stuff, including analyzing stories from the Talmud and really giving us the gist of a Jew learning Torah versus anybody else in the world that uses the Torah to learn or other, um, you know, secular wisdoms. And we're going to see the difference and the quality in the learning and the specialty of learning of Torah and the Jewish people as a whole. The Rebbe begins on the verse in this week's Parsha that speaks about the moments leading up to the Jews arriving at Mount Sinai and finally standing at the feet, at the foot of Mount Sinai and receiving the Torah. And we have in today's Parsha the actual announcement of the Ten Commandments that we heard while we were standing at Mount Sinai. Now, there's a verse that says the following, that when the Jews came to the mountain, when we were there, Vayichan Sham, we rested there, Yisrael, Israel, rested, they camped, they camped there is probably the better word, Neged Hahar, opposite the mountain. Now, there's a Mechilta, which is the Medrash, that says the following, every time when we have that the Jews traveled from when we left Egypt, we traveled many times, and then we settled, we camped. So every time it actually says the words that we traveled, we moved, and we camped, it says it in plural. That's because we were a group of plural. We were many, and we were fought. We argued. And even when we dwelled and camped, it says also in plural, meaning even when we camped, we were in different opinions. But here, when it says that we camped by the Mount of Mount Sinai over there, it says it in singular form. And that teaches us that here, when we finally arrived at Mount Sinai, we were all in unison. We were all there with one heart. There was no more fighting. Imagine the presence standing at Mount Sinai and the revelations and so on. That's the way the Medrash Tanchuma, sorry, the Mechilta puts it. This same idea is also brought down in Rashi, our favorite commentary on the contents of the Torah. And Rashi says like this, in a different order. Rashi says, first, emphasizing what happened at the mountain, that it says, Vayichan Sham Yisrael, that the Jews dwelt there, it says Rashi, meaning that they, they dwelt as one person with one heart. But all other campings happened in turmoil and in with arguments. So what you see is that the Mechilta says first about all other camps that there was arguments, but by Mount Sinai we were in unison. Rashi says it the opposite. First he mentions the unison part at the mountain, and then he mentions that all other travelings were in arguments. What's the logic behind this? Obviously, not just what they say, but even the order the way our sages say things also mean things. And the difference is in how they learn out, like on what words of the Parsha do they stress their point. In the Mechilta, he says that over here, we learn that everybody was with one heart not traveling in arguing and, and dwelling, camping in arguments. But Rashi says that the chidush, the novelty over here is the opposite. That all chaniyas was in arguments and over here it was all in unison. But why does Rashi mention unison part here first? So the difference is whether you learn it out 
that it says the words Vayisu Vayachenu, which means they traveled and they dwelt in plural. Therefore, he says over here when it says it only in singular, it means here that we were all in unison. Rashi learns differently. Rashi says when it says the words that we traveled and we dwelt, he says in simple translation of words, which Rashi always takes the simplicity of the context, he says we don't really know that in plural means that they fought. Maybe that they were just a many people. and Let's say we were many tribes, we were 12 tribes. So that's why it says it in plural, but not necessarily that they were fighting. So the fact that everywhere else it says in plural that they traveled and they dwelled, it says it in plural, that could be just simply because there were a lot of people. But Rashi says, here it says, by, by the Mount Sinai it says, that we dwelt there. Why does it have to say there? It should it just say that they, we dwelt? We're talking about at the foot of Sinai. So there, Rashi says, from here I see the fact that it says there we dwelt in singular form. Now I understand that here we were singular. We were all one people, one heart. But everywhere else, it must be that it's different and it was the opposite of having the feeling of one people, one heart. However, the Rebbe says that we have to understand what is the thinking of the Mechilta. In other words, maybe that Vayisu, Vayachur, that they traveled and they dwelt, maybe it does mean that they just dwelt in plural because there was many different groups. How do you know that it was actually fighting? Another thing that's not understood, the Mechilta, this Medrash, actually says, on the verse that says that the Jews, when we left Egypt, it says, Vayisu b'nei Yisrael, and we, the Jews traveled from the city of Ramses, or town, whatever, the area called Ramses, and we traveled to a place that's going to be called Sukkah, Sukkaisa. Says the Mechilta, that that traveling distance is actually not so close to each other. Why does the verse say it as if it's right next to each other? To teach you that it, we traveled that distance in a miraculous travel. It happened swiftly like the blink of an eye. That we went from Ramses to Sukkot. To fulfill the verse that it says that God lifted us up on the shoulders of the eagles. Obviously, if we were lifted on the shoulders of the eagles and it carried all the Jews from one place to the other place in this miraculous form that we traveled so fast like the swift of an eye, like the blink of an eye, you would think that there was no time for arguments. So why does it have to say Vayisu in plural, that they traveled in plural? Which the Mechilta says it means that it was there was a fight. That's why it's plural. There was fighting going on. But one second, if the whole traveling was just the, blink, the time of a blink of an eye, there's no time to fight. So why does the same Mechilta who says that we traveled so fast, and, and then he's the same guy that says that what it says in plural means that we're fighting. There was no time to fight. On the other hand, even according to Rashi, it's not understood. Why does the verse have to say the word there to exclude that everywhere else there was fighting? Why is it relevant here when we're standing in front of the foot of Mount, of Mount Sinai, we get about to receive the Torah, you have to stress to me that the Jews are not such perfect people and everywhere else we would fight? Like, is, is this the place to talk about our weak side? Why does Rashi have to point this out? That that's what the verse is telling me by Mount Sinai. Over there we dwelt in unison, but everywhere else was fighting. Doesn't make sense to teach me this lesson right here at this place at the foot of Mount Sinai that everywhere else the Jews were fighting. The explanation is the following. Rashi, as we said, only explains things according to pshat. Pshat means the simple way of understanding things. Therefore, when Rashi tells that everywhere else we were arguing, he means literally arguing. So when it says in plural that we traveled and we dwelt, seemingly 
we don't see anywhere in the literal text that plural means fighting. Maybe we were just a many people, like we said. So according to Rashi, he doesn't have a proof that it means fighting, and that's why it was many. But only in our verse, where it says, sham, and there's that extra word, to teach you something. What does that African word teach you? That over here, we were all like one person, one heart, but everywhere else we were, we were arguing. So in other words, in Rashi's interpretation of words, there's no room to start thinking of all kinds of ideas. Why is it plural? Because we were fighting. Loosely translated, we were just many people. That's why it says it in plural. But the Mechilta, he says that the idea of arguing actually says machlokes. But what kind of machlokes? Not the kind of machlokes fighting like we would think, which is the opposite of peace. He, what he's saying is that no, it's not fighting in terms of opposite of peace. We were different in views. As we all know, there's a saying that says, the Talmud brings it down in several places, that people think differently. Ein deosehen shavas. All pe- every person thinks differently. There's no two people that think exactly, exactly the same. So when it says plural, it must mean that they had different kinds of views. But not necessarily does it mean fighting. Therefore, everywhere it says it in, in plural, because to teach you that when they traveled, they had different opinions. Different opinions doesn't mean fighting, it just means we had different views. Especially as we know, there's a Hasidus uh, uh, that, that the deeper insights of the traveling. It says that we traveled in total 42 times the Jews traveled. So it says that the 42 travelings actually was ascending levels in our service to Hashem. Obviously, there's many differences between one Jew and another Jew. Everybody travels and ascends in their relationship with Hashem in all different kinds of ways. According to your heart, levavcha, according to your soul, bechal nafshecha, according to your soul, bechal modecha, with all your might. So clearly everybody has a different kind of way of experiencing their drive, their travelings in their relationship with Hashem. But over here, by the giving of the Torah, there's a novelty. Since it says that we dwelt there, and in, it says it only in singular form, it must mean with one heart. Not why, because standing at the mountain, Ready to receive the Torah, we were all equal in heart. We were one person. Not even Levav, like Levavcha, Levav with two vases. Levav, we know, means the both, both evils, both inclinations, the evil inclination, the good inclination. Here he said it's only one heart, Lev. Why? Because the Torah, because the Torah is so powerful that it creates a peace completely in this world, and therefore it created a unison amongst all Jews, to the point that even if we had different views, it all melted. We were all one people. And therefore, now we can understand that when they traveled from the city of Ramses to Sukkah, over there it says it in plural. Because even though that traveling, which was one second, it was in a way we were all all together. But you can't say the singular form. Because maybe even though one second we could have had different views. Therefore, according to the Mechilta, he could say that idea that it was all traveled miraculously on the on the on the shoulders of the uh, of the eagle, and it was in one second, it doesn't mean we were fighting. We were still had different opinions and different views about things. So it's not a contradiction. It could be in one second, and we still had different views. That's why it says it in plural. And this is why it says in our verse, by the, before getting the Torah, it says that we dwelt there, which stresses that everywhere else we were not in a place of having one feeling, one heart involved. And that's the idea of the Torah. The power of the Torah at the giving of Sinai had that miraculous, powerful event. And Rashi says even more that the Torah teaches that the Torah itself creates this unison that there shouldn't even be different views of different kinds of arguments. And everywhere else, there could be different views. So, when we say that the Torah has such a power that in the presence of the giving of the Torah, we all melt into one heart. 
Let's understand this idea a little bit better. What does it mean when you have the presence of the Torah? We're all one. We're all, we're all the same. Seemingly, we know that when anybody that learns Torah knows that when you study Torah, there's many different views. There's many different opinions. Remember, I once shared with you the, the story as a side note. But I once shared with you the story when I was in Kolel. In Crown Heights, after you get married, you could sit and learn all day for one year. Before, once you start having kids, it's not so simple to learn anymore. Full day for sure not. So, anyways, one day we were sitting there, and a woman came into the to the to the hall to to speak to the dean of you know all these all the, all of us learning there, and she had a chicken, a half a chicken that she bought, and she found that at the knee it was filled with blood, and she wanted to know if what she should do with this chicken if it's kosher. Because that the junction of all so many veins by the knees, actually, if it happened while the chicken was still alive, it would render the chicken not kosher. So she wanted to know it had a kosher symbol on it. She bought it in the kosher butcher shop. So the rabbi had a choice. He could either tell her, according to this opinion, it's kosher. According to this opinion, it's not. According to this, a third opinion, this. He could go through all the opinions. But what does a lady want to know? A lady wants to know, is it kosher or is it not kosher? So we do have many different views. The end was in that story, he said to her that it was not kosher, but luckily she bought a whole chicken. If she would have bought only a half a chicken, then the butcher shop would have to throw in the garbage all halves, because maybe each half could have been the half of this one. You know, The point is, as the Rebbe once said it at Fabring, and when a person comes to ask a question, you have to answer them straight, with the, with the final conclusion of a law. But every law has many opinions. We actually know back into the Sikher, the sages teach us, that when it comes to laws, it says that when it comes to the laws of purity and impurity, it says there are 49 ways to learn about sub, a subject that of purity, and there are 49 ways, ways to interpret something impure. That means the Torah itself sanctions that there's different views. There's different halachic views. However, every view is Torah. As we learned once in a Sicha elsewhere, where the Rebbe points out that even to learn any of these opinions, even if it's not the concluding law, you also say the bracha, no senator in the morning. Just a side note. But the point is, how over here do we say that by the giving of the Torah, everybody's heart was equal as one heart when we see that there are many different views when it comes to learning Torah? And even though the halacha is only going to be like one person, one opinion, and you have to follow the one opinion, but that doesn't mean that all other opinions are garbage. It's only that when it comes to practice, you have to know bottom line how to practice. So how do we say we were all with one heart? One heart means that there's no other opinion. And we just said that in Torah, we allow the idea of many people to study and come to their own conclusion what the law is. In practice, you have to go by the bottom line what the law is. But you could at least study it in different angles and views. So what does it mean that we were all in unison? So to understand this, we have to understand better what does it mean, Vayichan. In singular form, that we dwelt there in singular. And that happened when? When we got the Torah. Rebbe says, you have to understand when it comes to the giving of the Torah, there's something very unique. It says that when did the Jews get the Torah? It was in the third month. We left Egypt in Nisan. Then we counted 49 days. The 50th day we got the Omer. So Nisan is the first month. We started on the 15th day of the month. And then Iyar and Sivan, the third month we got the Torah. That means that when we dwelt there in unison, it has something to do with the number three. As the sages actually stressed the idea that the Torah in general has many components with the number three. It says, blessed be the Torah that was given a Torah of three, the Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ksuvim. It was given to a nation made up of three Kohen Levites and Israelites. It was given through a person who's a third. Moses had an older, he was number three in his family, Aaron, Miriam, and Moshe. It was given on the third day in the third month. The third day because they had three days where you had to separate from your wife, separate from all kinds of uh, material things. So you see the Torah has multiple ideas of number threes. 
it must be that the Torah is connected to number three. But how could that be? We just said that we dwelt there in singular, in yachid. It was a singular word. As one people, as one heart. So we really are, we're all connected to the idea of one. One means of unison of one. Like we find in the six days of creation of the world, that on the first day Hashem said, it was Yom Echad, it was one day. And Hashem alone was there. That means that everything in unison is one. But what's the connection to three then? Three represents many, multiples, arguments. So how do you explain the different, the connection between one and singular and with three, if we find both ideas with the giving of the Torah. We stood there as a single people, all as one person, one heart. On the other hand, it says that everything's all about three. The explanation is that the difference between when you hint something in number one, two, and three. One, to begin with, represents that there's only one entity. For example, Hashem. It says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God, blessed be He, is Yachid Ba'ilama. He's the only one in this world. Two shows on arguments, which is the opposite of unison. I always use the example, outside of the Sicha, but an example. It says that when a person lives alone, is there any fighting in your house? There's no fighting. You're all alone. As soon as there's somebody else, there's room for fights. So what do you do if there's now two? So comes a number three. And the third party unites them together. We always, Whenever there's a dispute, you need a third party. What does it mean a third party? In, in Shalom Bias, it usually means to bring in Hashem into the relationship. Bring in a godly force into it. Right? In this case here, he brings the example. What if you find, and many times we find this, we find two verses that seem completely contradictory. Contradictory two verses. Then you find a third verse that reconciles the difference. We actually say this in the Rabbi Yishmael prayer. The Brisa Rabbi Yishmael that we say in the morning before davening, right before the first, first Kaddish, in the blue sitter on page 25, you say the 13 principles of interpretation from Rabbi Yishmael, and one of them is this principle. If you have two verses that contradict each other, you find a third verse that will combine them together. Okay, yet you need to have a special class to get examples of this. But this is the principal rule in learning. If you have two contradictory verses, you bring a third to bring them together. So on one hand, the Torah, the true Torah, is testifying that there's no differences. And we're saying that there, even though there are contradictories, you could bring them, you could figure out a reconciliation. That means it's not just that there are two different contradictions in one verse. And if you'll work very hard in these two verses, you'll be able to figure out a way how to reconcile them. But you, you have to find a third verse. And without that third verse, you, they are contradictory verses. There's no way you could fall asleep if you read that probably. So you need to find the third verse that's going to bring it together. On the other hand, we find that the third verse, when it comes to reconcile the two verses that contradicts, the reconciliation is so true. And it's not to a point where it says, we're not talking about where the third verse says, oh no, verse one is false. Only verse two is true. That's not what the third verse does. The third verse comes and says that you're both right. You're both right. But from my point of view, from, my, from the third verse, you're going to see that both verses are 100% right. And they're both true. They're both Taurus, MS. And we're not looking to say that one is not true. That's why you need a third verse. It doesn't say find a third party. Get a third verse, another Torah point. So too we have this. If you have two people that are trying to figure out a halacha, which means an actual law, so you find 
a way to reconcile it by figuring out you have to break your head to find a way how to reconcile it. But what's the point of the reconciling? It has to be like the third verse. That both parties that each prove their point of law will agree to the other one. In other words, the third party is bringing together, it's uniting both views. Not that it's saying one is wrong and one is right. Now the fact that we associate this idea with number three, it's understood that the general idea of Torah is like the idea of reconciling and bringing opposites together and showing that both are true. That means even in places where the halacha is not like the reconciliation one, and it seems like it's saying that one, one opinion is not the right opinion. The truth is that when you're reconciling it with truth, you're actually bringing together even the opinion that we're not going to rule like. Why? Because after you rule your ruling, the one that sees that the law is not like him is going to learn more and learn more and learn more till he himself also comes to the same conclusion as the other party. They don't walk away forever feeling that their way view is not accepted. That's what we call the kayach, the power of the Torah. We have a verse in the Torah that talks about the power of the Torah, the strength. It says, Hashem oz, la'amo yitain, Hashem yivarech es amo vashalom. We say this several times in our davenings. It's in chapter 29 in the book of Tehillim. We say it Friday night in the davening and other, play, other times. Hashem Ois, God is the power, is the strength. He gives the power and the strength to his nation. Hashem Yevarech as Amo, and God blesses his nation with peace. First, you have a debate amongst people. In the ideas of Torah. You think of ideas that go this way. You have ideas that go the other way. But when you bring them together. All the different views. And for that you have to have. You have to have strength. When it says Hashem gives strength. What does that mean? He gives you the determination. The strength. To come to the right conclusion. To fight for your view. That my view is based on the Torah's view and this is what I, you know, and you have to prove it and prove it again and somebody tries to say, no, it's not true because I have another view. Hashem gives you the strength until you're Poveil and then you come to the ultimate Shalom. You're not fighting to prove the other person wrong. We're not talking about that scenario. We're talking about you're fighting for the truth, for truth. That's when you have the end of the verse, Hashem Yivarech, Hashem blesses us, Amo, his nation with Shalom. So that the halacha should come out so true that there's now peace between the parties. Even though each one had its own view in how to see a law, now they reconcile together. Here the Rebbe points out an amazing story. There's a story brought down in the Talmud and Rosh Hashanah. In the Mishnah. It says that in the days when we used to calculate the first day of the month. How did you know when Rosh Chodesh is? People would come to the Bethin and they had to testify. I saw the new moon. It's a look this way, that way. They would cross-examine the, the, the witnesses until they came to a conclusion. So there was one time where Rabbi Yehoshua decided which is the day. He ruled a certain way, which meant that Yom Kippur was on a certain day. But Rabbi Gamliel, who was a superior to him, said, no, I follow the different calculation. My According to my way of calculating it, Yom Kippur is a different day. Rabbi Gamliel called over Rabbi Yeshua and he said, when Yom Kippur comes, I want you to come to me. Sorry, when Yom Kippur comes on your calculation date, I want you to come to me and I want you to carry your staff and carry your money and come to me on the day that you think is Yom Kippur. In other words, he wants him to show that the, he agrees that with me that the Allah is like me. Imagine, on Yom Kippur, this other rabbi who he says Yom Kippur is on that certain day, he's now going to have to carry his stuff like to the, his superior. You could ask a question. Why did Rabbi Gamaliel make Rabbi Yeshua or command him to bring his staff and his money? Why couldn't he just tell him? 
you live in Yavna, and from Yavna to where I live, you have to walk a distance, you have to walk outside the boundaries that a person's allowed to walk on Shabbos, more than 2,000 cubits. He could have just told them simply, why don't you just come visit me? That would have sufficed. Why did he have to make him also carry his stick and his money? I mean, come on, why did he have to go so far? One of the explanations is, he wanted to show him that if you're going to do it with me, as my opinion, you may do it just because you're a humble guy and you're going to accept whatever I say out of accepting the yoke. But in your own mind, you're going to disagree with my ruling. That's not enough for me. Rabbi Gamliel wanted that Rabbi Yeshua should also agree with his conclusion intellectually. He should also agree with, the, with all the logical reasons that Rabbi Gamliel calculated that this is the day for Yom Kippur. Now to prove this, he wanted him to, to come to this conclusion also with his own intellect. So he tested him with this by telling him to bring his stick and his money. Because this way, I will be able to see that you agree with me in your entire being, in all details. Even things that are external for you, you'll also bring it. And not just with your stick, because a stick at the end of the day is a helper for a person. Right? As the Talmud puts it, the Rebbe brings it in the footnote, that it's better to be a person who walks on two, two, two than three. In other words, it's better to be young and have walk with two feet than to be an old person they have to walk with a stick at a third. You know? So in other words, what's the point of a stick? It's to help a person to walk. But he says, and not just that, that you're going to bring your helper's leg, you're going to bring your stick, even your money, which is even more external, if you're going to bring that from Yavna, then I will know that you really, really, really agree even in your mind way of thinking. Let's explain this a little bit better. What does it mean to do things because just because, in, because your intellect understands or to do it even if you don't get it intellectually or learning wisely, not because of your wisdom, you do it just because you were told to do it. Which way is better? Here the Rebbe shows us this unbelievable idea. Torah, we have a verse in Vaschanon that says that the Torah is the wisdom and understanding. It's your wisdom and understanding. God, it's God's wisdom and understanding is the Torah. Nevertheless, we find a quality in wisdom of Torah over all other kinds of wisdom. The sages tell us like this. If somebody comes and says that the nations of the world, the Goyim, they have Chachma, they have wisdom, you should accept what the person says and believe him. But if somebody says that the nations of the world have Torah, don't believe them. That's a pretty strong statement. Seemingly, it's not understood. If they have Chachma, if they have wisdom... They could have the Torah too. We just said that the verse says that God is Chachmaschem Obenaschem. And as a matter of fact, it says about the Jewish people that we are the, we are the wisdom and understanding to the eyes of the nations. So why are we saying here? If you hear that the nations of the world have wisdom, you should believe it. If you, if you hear that they have Torah, that you shouldn't believe. The meaning is, because there's a an adva- a quality advantage in the Torah component that you don't that the goyim don't have, and that is there's a certain benefit in the wisdom that's with Torah, not wisdom on its own, but wisdom with Torah, and therefore we say the Torah is chachmaschem, it's your special wisdom, ubeinaschem, and it's your special understanding. In the eyes of the nation. What is the advantage of Torah over wisdom? What does it mean, Torah? Torah means, Torah comes from the word 
Hayra'a, which means lessons. Torah is a lesson book. It's a guidebook. It's not just to explain the truth of something. The Torah teaches us always you have to have a Bachain. You know how you say on Shabbos by Yishtabach? What's the word before you say for Yishtabach? Uvechain Yishtabach. You add Uvechain. Uvechain means, and what's the bottom line? What's the bottom line? When you learn Torah, you have to ask yourself when you finish learning Torah, what's the takeaway? What's the bottom line? How and what am I taking away in my con- conducting myself? In bottom line. It's different when you just do, learn things because of the wisdom. Wisdom itself does not teach you necessarily ways how to conduct. Wisdom teaches you that if I conduct myself in a certain way, the result will be in a certain way. But it doesn't command you to, to conduct yourself in a certain way. And there gives an example. In knowledge of medicine, medicine tells a person that if you conduct yourself in a certain way, your outcome is going to be in a certain way. Take this medicine and the outcome will be so and so. But is there a medicine that could force you to live in a certain way? If you don't want to do it, take the medicine, or if you don't want to take the amount of quality or quantity of, of this medicine... Okay, you can hurt yourself. You know the results. You studied it. You heard about it. Somebody else studied it. But it doesn't compel you to actually act to the medicine. With the Torah, it's different. Torah compels us and does not allow for us to harm ourselves. So you see clearly that the wisdom, when you're learning general wisdom, it's a different thing than learning wisdom of Torah. Because Torah compels us to make into an a- action the result. Regular wisdom does not mean that it must turn into a result, any kind of result. And therefore, the Torah is your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the nations. Because learning in such a kind of way, if you study the Torah in a way that it must bring you to the result and how you're going to conduct yourself, that means that when I'm learning, I'm only going to learn in a way to figure out and study it and argue about it, which is okay, and try to learn this commentary and that commentary and go back and forth in every possible way until you find a conclusion and how it's going to help you in your day-to-day life. And that's going to force you to use your head even more and toil in your learning. And by toiling in the learning, you could actually get to the conclusion to learn properly, which means to get the right outcome. And therefore, the chachma of the Torah is connected not just with regular wisdom, but with the deepest parts of the wisdom. Because when you learn wisdom with of Torah, you're compelled to figure out the bottom line. And you're not going to go to sleep until you figure out the bottom thing. You're going to work hard, work hard until you figure out what's the bottom line? How should I conduct myself? You're going to research and research and call your rabbi in the middle of the night until you figure out what's the bottom line. How do I learn? Do I, am I learning this right? How am I going to conduct myself? Right? And so on and so forth. Now, what's the reason why there's such a big difference in Torah and wisdom in general? The reason why we have this difference, it's not just a fact that we have the difference. There's a reason why wisdom with Torah is different than wisdom without Torah. The reason is because the Torah is the wisdom and the desire of Hashem. Who, who, who's Torah is this? It's God's wisdom. It's the desires of Hashem that are written in the Torah. And Hashem is the epitome of the ultimate truth. And truth means that it's truth from the beginning to the middle to the end. There's no such a thing of one part that's not true. If one part is not true, the whole thing is not true. You can't say that there's one word in the Torah... (laughs) That's not true. The rest is true. It doesn't work like that. If you say that, then the whole then you're denying the whole Torah. Right? You remember the famous uh, thing he brings out in other places that the word MS for truth is Aleph Mem Tuf. Aleph is the first letter of the Torah. Mem is the middle. Tuf is the end. It shows you that truth is beginning, middle, and then the whole thing. 
That means when you learn, it must hold water in all levels. And therefore, the Torah reveals the truth. And therefore, there's no room to stop by the limitations of the human's wisdom. Because you understand that bottom line, it has to bring you to how you're going to conduct yourself. And you take it through and through until you bring down to the bottom line. And it's for this reason that we have also differences on the way of your learning and getting your wisdom according to a different than other kinds of wisdom. As the sages teach us, that the reason why did the sages establish that when there's an argument between Hillel and Shammai, who does the law go like? Hillel. Why is there such a rule? Shouldn't it be every subject where there's an argument, let's figure out who's right, who's wrong. But no, the sages say blanket rule. Whenever there's an argument between Hillel and Shammai and they're learning Torah, no matter what each one's conclusion is, the law is going to follow Hillel. Why? What's so unique about Hillel's style? And the answer is because Mipnei, it says, Shanechin va'aluvin hayu. Hillel, and meaning the whole school of Hillel, they were very pleasant and they were easygoing people. Pleasant and easygoing. And think about this. Seemingly, when it comes to the bottom line of, of figuring out the Torah thing, why don't we quote something from Shammai? It says about Shammai that he was a very sharp rabbi. And me, that means all their students were that style. They were much sharper. Why don't we go with them? Wouldn't you think that, you know, the person who's sharp and wit and quick and, you know, could bring you a really sharp statement, that's probably the, the one that we should follow. But no. Why? Because in order to get to the true essence of the conclusion of a law, you have to not be satisfied with intellect alone. Shammai was intellect alone. Hillel was intellect, but also had the humility. He was a pleasant, patient people. That's why it says that Hillel and Shammai, whenever they had an argument, Hillel ruled lenient, and Shammai would lean more strict. Right? When in doubt, Hillel went lenient, Shammai went the other way. It says that the soul of Hillel came from a place called Chesed, and Shammai's soul came from Gvora. His soul came from kindness, so he always ruled lenient. Shammai rules on Gvora, more, more restrained, more strict, so he went strict. The Rebbe here doesn't bring down examples of where you see they were stricter or lenient, but just I'll give you a quick one. It says that um, if you, if you walk, let's say you had a kiddush in Shul, and you came, you walked a few blocks on your way home, and you forgot to bench. Oive, I didn't make the blessings after the meal. Hillel says, wherever you are, you could, you could make your blessing. Shammai says, no, 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 that's a shortcut. Go all the way back to the shul and bench in the place where you ate. So you see, Hillel is more lenient, Shammai is more strict, right? Therefore, even though that their own intellect is obviously about searching for the truth, and therefore you have to be able to, you know, dodge through each way of thinking, whether you're going to go this way or that way, and as you see, Beis Shammai is natural inkling was to think more strict than Hillel was to be more lenient, Nevertheless, there's always this idea of how you're going to grab, how are you going to absorb the ultimate truth? If you have humility, then you could go out of your own space and you could, after all the thinkings back and forth of every angle, why it should be this way, why it should be that way, you could get to the conclusion of truth. And therefore, the halacha would follow Hillel or anybody that follows this way of thinking because they were pleasant and easygoing. And this idea of having this uniqueness of accepting the laws of Torah, but also first analyze it with your mind, use your mind to get to the conclusion, we have this idea also in the way the entire Mishnah, which is 
the Talmud is all based, explains the Mishnah from the beginning and the end. What's the first Mishnah of the entire Mishnayis? It says, Me'emasai Kairin Es Shema. When is the right time to read the Shema? What's the right time? How dark does it have to be in the morning? How light does it have to be? That's the subject is about the morning, about the Shema. What's the concluding of the entire Mishnah is the last, last Mishnah says that whoever learns a halacha every day, you're secured to have a place in the world to come. So it mentions that you have to learn halacha all the time. Why is that? Why is this the subject? There's always a connection from the beginning to the end. The end is teaching you about law and the beginning is teaching you about accepting the yoke of heaven. Accepting that there's a driving force that I have to accept of godliness, of truth. In order that the entire studying of Mishnah and Talmud that you're learning, in order for the entire Shas to be in a way where I really have the blessing to come to the conclusion of what's the right law, you have to start off with the Shema. Shema teaches you the acceptance that there's a king, that there's an authority, there's a God in the world. By having that humility, then you can accepting and you can get to the bottom line of law. Why? Because if you have humility, then you have awe, you have fear, and you're going to be humble to accept the ultimate law, even if it's not exactly your style to follow it in this kind of way. Based on this, we can also understand why the Torah says and creates a peace between two sides to the point that both sides will agree with you. We said before, if there's an argument and one person says the Torah's conclusion is like this, the other one says, no, the conclusion is like this, comes a third person, a greater Torah scholar or a third verse, and reconciles them to the point that they both agree. When we're talking about different opinions that you came to a conclusion only with your intellect, then you're going to still stick with yours. You're not going to give in to the other side. But if, and, and that will be like the Chachma, the wisdom of the nations of the world, that you could grasp it in a certain way. And you may be able to say that a normal person should behave in a certain kind of way. But when there's different opinions, you're going to go after whatever, the majority of opinion and so on. And you have to do it. But you have to understand that ultimately it's about grasping it also with your own intellect. So when you see somebody else has a different view as you, even though you went to the rabbi and you got the conclusion of what's the the right law, you have to start to search and search in yourself till you figure out and agree to the other side. And you're supposed to learn it to agree. Don't just, in principle, and practice, yes, right away you should agree. But even in yourself, you should study and study and study until you can accomplish to see the other person's view. And then it doesn't matter if you're a thinking kind of person like Chesed or you're a thinking kind of person like Gvorah. And therefore, when a person learns Torah with this kind of humility that all it is is you're trying to figure out what's the truth, what does Hashem want? and it's not about my own ego in it, then you could put everything aside and you could get to the bottom line in how to rule something. Now, he's going to come back to the idea of the question we asked earlier. We said, if the whole idea of standing by the foot of Mount Sinai is that we're in a singular form and we're all now like one person, one heart, how come the whole idea of the Torah is broken up into three so he says, let's understand the same idea by understanding the value of having two different opinions and then getting the conclusion now all three parties are in the same sink. We can understand this with the three months that led up to the giving of the Torah. First, we had the month of Nisan. Nisan was the month where we went out of Egypt. What happened when we went out of Egypt? How did we go out of Egypt? Because God revealed himself and redeemed us. In other words... We didn't even earn it. We did, it wasn't even owed to us at the time. Hashem revealed Himself and took us out. That means it came from above. And since the redemption came from above, from Hashem, so to begin with, there was no differences amongst Jews. At that time, Hashem took out everybody. 
ever wanted to go out was able to go out. Why? Because it came from above. It's like having so much light that you don't see the differences between one thing and another thing. Now we find the uniqueness of all Jews were like one when we left Egypt in the way we went out and in the level that we were. Even the gathering together of all Jews, look what happened. We left Egypt. We went from Ramses to Sukkah, as we said before, on the wings of the eagle. And therefore, when there was no, there was no difference in time, in one moment we were lifted and brought to the next place. So the way we left, we were all in one moment. There was no differences of people. Then we have also in the quality of the Jews. When we left Egypt, it says, we were a tzivot Hashem. What does that mean? We were all of a sudden, we were the army of Hashem. What's the main quality of army? What's the uniqueness of an army? I remember once reading a letter, as a side note, I'm bringing this down. In the end of 1980 and 81, the Rebbe started this new campaign called the Army of Hashem. All kids under Bar Bat Mitzvah, they're supposed to sign up to this organization. It's called the Army of Hashem, Tzivos Hashem. And somebody wrote a letter to the Rebbe saying, why did you pick a subject, a name of a, of a, of a new, new organization with army? Is that what we want to teach our kids about guns and bombs and, and, and armory stuff? Why did you call it the army? You couldn't find another name. The Rebbe wrote back to this people that I've been thinking for a very long time. What is the problem with the youth in America? And I came to one conclusion. The lack of acceptance of authority. People don't listen to authority anymore. And he said it came to a point that the only authority people would listen to, if they don't listen to their teachers and parents, forget about it, would be only the police. But then it came to a point that people learned how to outsmart the, the law with the police and outsmart the judge in court too. So Rebbe said, after thinking long and hard, I came to the conclusion that we have to fix this problem. And by making an organization to teach people the value of a soldier, an army, one of the greatest qualities of an army is teaching that the soldier listens to what the authority says, even if it doesn't make sense to you. If your commander says you go or you do this, you do that, you go and you do it. This idea is what the Rebbe tried to implant and help us. Because Kabbalah's oil, accepting the yoke, means that there's no difference between one person in the army and another person. And this is why, back to the point here, when we left Egypt, we got the name Tzivos Hashem. We were called the army of Hashem. To show that there's no differences between us. We were all like one people devoted for the same cause. And since when we left Egypt, it came from above in a way that it took out, out all the Jews out of Egypt as one equal level. Therefore, there was no differences amongst Jews. There was no differences between the 12 tribes, Kohen, Levites, and Israelites. It just says he took us all out. doesn't specify only Kohen, only Levi, only this tribe or that tribe. It took us all out. So what united us all together? The two qualities. Accepting of the yoke. In other words, accepting that I'm a soldier and that's it. And the fact that Hashem came from above and took us out. On the other hand, this unity of accepting things the way it is, is when it comes to the bottom line, how to conduct yourself. But Jews, inherently, are intellectual people. So therefore, inherently, we stayed a people that have different opinions. It's only that there was such a revelation from above, so all the differences melted away. Therefore, it says... Vayisu, we traveled, it says in plural. We were many because we still had our different views, because we use our intellect, so we're different kinds of people. That was all in the first month when we left. Chodesh Nisan. Then came the month of Ir. The next month is represented by the idea that it's a full month of counting the Omer. That means it's a full month where we have to do something. All of a sudden, the entire month of year, first day to the last, every day we count and we work on our, on our emotions and our behaviors. At that point, 
we were a many people. There's different levels. Every Jew represents his relationship with Hashem according to your, your level. So that was Ir. So again, Nisan, we were all like one people, even though we were inherently different, but we acted as one. We were taken out as one. We went on the eagle's wings as one. And therefore we traveled fast, everything was two seconds. We didn't have time to voice our differences. In ER, we had time to difference, voice our differences because each one was working on their closeness with Hashem in their way. Then you had the third month. The month, as we said before, the month, the third month is the month when we received the Torah. The, at that moment, we stood by, by the giving of the Torah, we were all melted into one heart. We literally felt all exactly the same. Even though we were different in views and it could lead to arguments, the Torah created a peace to unite all the differences. And that's why only when we reached to that point were we all one. Says the Rebbe, he concludes like this, that there are many lessons from this whole thing of this unity that happens at the foot of Mount Sinai. But he says one of the lessons is the following. The Alter Rebbe and the Tanya in chapter 32, he describes to us how is it possible to love another Jew? Isn't every Jew different? How could you love everybody like you love yourself? Obviously, you're the best. How could you accept another person for who they are and their weaknesses? So Rebbe says, if you think about their soul, that their soul is their primary thing of, of their existence and their body is only secondary, you won't get caught up on how their body behaves. Because you're going to think only about the soul. And and the soul level, we're all one. We all come from the same place. That's how it's possible to love your fellow as much as you love yourself. But you could ask a question. When you're you're talking about the level of the the, the roots of everybody's soul, okay, we're all one. And we should all feel that. But when you're talking about another person, which not just his soul is not visible... You can't even see his soul. This person is so far that you you don't even see this. You don't even know that he has a soul. But the person could be in such a stage that they're so materialistic. They're so absorbed in their bodily pleasures that they're completely concealed over the the light of the soul. How could you expect a person to love another person for a soul that's completely concealed? Here comes the lesson. There... At the standing in front of the, the Mount Sinai getting the Torah, over there it's possible to feel that unity and be all one heart. That's the accomplishment of the Torah. That we know now that we have the strength. That when we're in the presence of Torah, we can have this unique oneness in the place of having differences. And through this, we can reach a higher level of unison than you could have it at the level of the soul. Like we said before, the third party comes in and makes that peace. Therefore, on the contrary, the efforts that we make in this idea of uniting people together, loving each other, must first and foremost have to do with the Jews in the way, which kind of Jews, especially with the Jews that are so um, low, that to the point that they're in a place that feels completely like an argumental place. It's a place of separation. You don't feel like at all you're on the same page. It's there that we realize that through the Torah we could unite everybody together. And through this effort in loving another person, uniting everybody together, to the point that Vayichan, if we stand by Mount Sinai, by the Torah, in this week's Parsha Yisra, we stand by the Torah as one people. We could connect it all together, and this creates, and we affect that every Jew should own at least one letter in the Torah. There are many Torahs called general Torahs. They are Torahs that are being written till today. People write Torahs. In a Torah you have, 305,805, I believe, or 304,805, somewhere around that number of letters in the Torah. Everybody could buy a letter, cost you a dollar or a few dollars. And when you buy a letter, you, you complete the entire Torah. 
And this unites everybody together and we merit to the new Torah, the new insights of the Torah that Mashiach himself is going to reveal to us. And this will bring the ultimate final redemption with the coming of Mashiach. May it be speedily in our days. And this Sicha was said over two Fabrengans, one in Parsha Bamidbar 1982, and one in Parsha Miketz in 1980. And it was published in 1983. So now we know exactly those details.